Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. We talk endlessly, it seems, about how siloed we are with respect to politics, race, and geography. Add to this the generational silo we all seem to live in. Reams have been written about intergenerational conflict, particularly in the workplace. But might this be one of the areas where the imaginary lines of division can be crossed? Can the improvement of intergenerational relationships be a kind of Rosetta Stone for better understanding all of the other issues that divide us? Issues that are fed by speed, modernity, technology, and popular culture. We're going to talk about this today with my guest, Chaim Herring. Dr. Chaim Herring is an author and presenter who specializes in faith-based communities. He's a former congregational rabbi and C-suite nonprofit executive. He's published over 60 scholarly and popular articles and studies about the intersection of technology, spirituality, and community. His newest book is Connecting Generations, Bridging the Boomer, Gen X, and Millennial Divide. Hi, I'm Herring. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me and for such a, a, a lovely introduction. I'm just sorry that I didn't have you write the forward to the book. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> Why do you think that this this idea of intergenerational cooperation is an important one right now? Because social isolation rates have been climbing, but not in the generations that we might have expected. Before, we would associate loneliness, uh, a lack of friends with those who are older. But what we see now is that it's the youngest generations that are greater risk for being isolated and lonely. And there are, aside from the, just the, the sheer p- human pain that I don't know how it's possible to quantify of feeling that way, but there are health risks. And one of the biggest predictors of longevity and happiness is social connectedness. So if that sense of isolation, that feeling of isolation is happening with younger generations, and you extrapolate forward, think about the risks that we're putting um, our very young at. And here's the moment, as you said, to try to do something about that. Talk a little bit about the irony of that perceived isolation of the younger generation in a world of social media and interconnection like never before. It is definitely counterintuitive, and I guess I call it social inaptitude. We seem to have more apps that are designed to connect us with one another, but the unintended consequence has been retreating into our devices, kind of hunkering down. So instead of getting up from if a parent is living at home, uh, walking out of the bedroom to walk downstairs to have a conversation with a parent, it's much easier to just send off a text. Or in the workplace, instead of getting up from your desk and having a three-minute conversation, that experience of having a flying chain of emails of misunderstandings that could, could have been resolved or may never have happened if people had become a little bit more old fashioned and just walked over and made eye contact with another human being. Talk a little bit about that because it is not only happening at home, 
but it is happening even to the parents in the workplace. We're seeing that exact same pattern take place in workplaces all over the country where people aren't having those conversations. Uh, They're not. And I think part of it has to do with those of us who are digital immigrants who did not grow up with technology. And when we look at younger generations, um, they've been weaned on technology. So they've almost forgotten the art of conversation and confused connections with relationships. And I think that um, we all have a stake in trying to be both technologically savvy, but also empathetic. And you can Google facts, um, but you can't Google empathy. Talk a little bit about that, because that really seems to go to the heart of this, that, that, that you could make the case for the efficiency of technological communication, but there really is an empathy factor that enters into the equation. Expand on that a little bit. So I'd like to challenge the notion that um, social media technology makes for more efficient communication. It really depends upon the issue. Sometimes it makes very good sense. Most times around significant matters, um, meeting with people is much better. Now, a meeting may still take place over a platform where it's possible to see another person. Um, A telephone call is fine. But I think when we get down to emojis, which are like modern day hieroglyphics or very quick text, things easily can spin out of control. And it's okay. It's not convenient sometimes to get up and risk a messy conversation. But look at the other possibility, and that is, increased misunderstanding and that horrible feeling that you get when you have um, a conversation that just went awry and you're not quite sure how, and you have to live with the aftermath of that misunderstanding. I mean, to a certain extent, that's what a lot of these people, the, the exact thing that they're trying to avoid. Talk about the importance of education with respect to this, because it really is something that has to start pretty early in order to inculcate the importance of conversation, the importance of interaction in in young people. You are correct. And I think that's where, again, I don't want to blame millennials or those who are younger for the way they communicate. Uh, You know, it's not like we purchased millennials off of a shelf from Amazon or Target, we, we raised them. So I think those of us who can still remember what it's like to have a conversation with someone, um, and again, it's not a binary situation where it's either no technology or all technology, but finding that middle path, we at, who are older, those who are boomers, those who are Gen Xers, who kind of straddle the divide between the digital and the non-digital world, we have some work to do and it takes practice. And some people are afraid to actually have a conversation. So find someone else who enjoys sitting down with people from different generations and practice, Uh, become a mentor and sign up for 
a mentoring uh, module where you can learn to become a mentor to a younger person. Volunteer if you're a boomer or a Gen Xer, I'm sorry, a Gen Xer or a millennial. Um, there's 720 hours in a month. I'm sure that you can find five hours and volunteer for a cause that involves other people from different generations. Do we have to look at this in a, in a two-track situation? Are we trying, those of us that, that are digital immigrants that still remember conversations and making phone calls, are we trying to put those ideas and those values into the reality of today's workplace and today's social interaction when in fact, arguably, we need to look at two separate tracks. We need to look at reasons why conversations take place. And maybe they're entirely different than the reasons conversations used to take place. That we need to look at empathy and interaction separate and apart from the way it used to mesh with productivity in the past. I think that that's a really significant point because if technology were the only reason that we have this social isolation phenomenon, it would be pretty easy to solve. We would just sort of go after that one track. But there are other, other issues at play. I'm really glad that you asked that question. So when we think about those who are seniors, um, and out of a compassionate sense, very often there's a continuum of care model where those who are older, uh, assisted living, memory care units, independent living, all on the same campus, but isolated from neighborhood. And at the same time, we find very often millennials, if they can afford or choose to own a home or in an apartment, um, choose to live with people who are only their own age. I think part of the reason for that is that we now have six or seven generations of people alive at one time. It was a lot easier to have conversation when you were speaking up to one generation or downward toward one generation. But mm. with six or seven generations, I think that this is, um, there's not a playbook for how to have conversations that span generations. So, We've got to work at it and experiment. Mm -hmm. And figure out what those conversations are about. Maybe they, they don't happen in the workplace the same as they used to. They don't happen where somebody gets up necessarily and, and, and has that conversation instead of sending the text or sending the email. But maybe the conversation takes place for an entirely different reason. And that empathy grows out of, out of different contexts than we're used to. I think that... The way things are at the moment, when I look at these rates of social isolation, um, any employer who's willing to take on this issue, any volunteer organization or neighborhood association, any faith-based organization, um, I think that it's a serious enough and pervasive enough issue where everyone has a, has a stake in seeing members of other generations thrive. What have you found in terms, particularly of, of boomers, but boomers and Gen Xers both, 
understanding or having a grip on the counterintuitive nature, as you talked about it before, of any kind of social isolation of millennials or, or Gen Z. You know, I, I, I was laughing because it brought me back to my interview stage where I had millennials and, and boomers. I asked them the same set of questions and their answers were so radically different that it gave me a better appreciation of how much has changed in such a brief amount of time. So, for example, when I was meeting with millennials, I asked them, when you hear the word boomer, what image or what idea comes to mind? And what they said was boomers, well, they're no fun to be with. They're obsessed with work. Uh, They feel entitled just by dint of their age that they should automatically lead and the bucket list, what is it about their bucket list? Why don't they understand that work and fun are not somehow at odds with one another? That if I want to take a weekend off and go on some exotic trick while I'm working, I can do it. When I ask boomers, when you hear the word millennial, what adjective comes to mind? Well, what they had to say was they're pleasure seekers, they're apathetic. Um, I heard the term snowflake, which I think is really kind of demeaning, meaning that they're special, unique, like every snowflake is. They have no grit. And they also use the word entitled, but differently. Boomers believed, perceived, that millennials feel entitled not only to have a job, but can't understand why they don't rise up the corporate ladder and become CEO more quickly. So I think that both generations lack an understanding of the experiences that shape the other. And maybe, Jeff, it's because of this constant breaking news kind of um, culture that we live in, where we don't take just even a few minutes to understand the history of each generation. Well, I mean, there there have been actually a couple of things recently about that, the lack of understanding of history and and more importantly, in a broader sense, of context that that people come to these things with. And and as long as that's absent, it's awfully hard to bridge those divides. And to your point, I think there has to be a willingness of people to say, we can do better than this isolation. Um, it doesn't take an act of Congress to sit together in a room. I mean, here's, here's my sort of dream scenario to start with. I can remember when my parents spoke of the first time a television was brought into their home. I can remember a color television and then several televisions. I can remember lugging in a very heavy desktop um, for the first time. And now we're down to smartwatches and soon to a screenless world. So the technologies have changed, but with each technological change, the same issues about boundaries and control and impact on conversation, I'm sure have come up. And wouldn't it be fruitful to bring people from different generations just to talk about what it was like introducing these different technologies and how it changed people. Why is it different 
and and maybe it is because we have more generations that are living together than at any other time. I mean, I, I think that that's part of it. But why is it different than it was for boomers and, and their parents, for example, who didn't understand each other at all? The world was changing, particularly in, in the early to mid-60s, and the World War II generation, the greatest generation, didn't understand what was happening at all. They were, there was a huge social disconnect. I don't think that we're in the midst of a garden variety generation gap. Part of it is because of the number of generations, but the other, I would say, major difference is the rate of disruption that we feel in our lives, whether it's education, entertainment, uh, banking, you name it. Everything has changed. And just when you feel like the ground has begun to settle, then the next big change comes along. And where I think this intergenerational piece is so critical is that today's disruptors will be tomorrow's disrupted. And won't we get along better if our GPS system is intergenerational relationships where we can bring in the best perspectives from different generations? Now, that requires a couple of things. Boomers have to let go of some control and be willing to listen without judgment, even though some things may be uncomfortable. And at the same time, um, millennials have to be willing to also listen a little bit about what it was like to grow up boomer. But we can do that. Maybe it has to be the millennials get disrupted by Gen Z before they're in a similar position. <laughs> well, it's happening. Right. They are different. Um, while millennials feel entitled, right, and often again hear employers say, you you should feel lucky to have me. Um, Gen Z, as you're pointing out, grew up at a time when they saw parents downsized, outsourced, um, contracts broken, and their feeling is, um, I'm lucky to have a job. And I'm willing to collaborate with you, millennial, but you're not going to hold me back. So we're about to see some more disruption, and it's starting. Talk about the exceptions to the rule and and what we learn from them because there are millennials and there's a lot of them that that, that break from the pack that are empathetic that do want to change the world that are more engaged that that are not socially isolated in fact precisely the opposite when we look at those examples what do we learn? To what degree does it give us hope? Can they be models for a larger conversation? I'm actually optimistic. Um, I think that we may be at the beginning of a pendulum swing. The millennials whom I interviewed and others, it sounds like you, you've had contact with, um, these are really amazingly talented young people. Um, they volunteer for Special Olympics. They've done Teach for America. Right. They're involved in environmental causes. And I think that they're often given an unfair um, stereotype. And yes, every generation has its you know, slackers, I think boomers included. But when you talk and meet with some of these younger people, um, they are not giving up. 
on making a change. I feel in some ways you're kind of picking up the thread that boomers started. Um, our, as you pointed out, our ability, our hope to do differently from our parents. We were the disruptors and then we became conventional. I see a thread of continuity in millennials wanting now to pick up where some boomers left off. Are those millennials the outliers or can that be the norm? I think that that depends a lot upon Gen Xers who again straddle that divide a little bit and also boomers. Are we willing to become more involved with younger generations, whether it's through mentoring, whether it's through modeling, letting go and letting others step forward? It's a little ironic. Boomers, uh, our motto was don't trust anyone over 30. Now we've kind of made that don't trust anyone over 60. Well, let's start trusting again. It, it worked out okay for us. So I think that um, there are ways to make that normative. I'm afraid if we don't, that the divides will grow even more deeply, and then we all lose. What does that look like if those divides get worse? Oh, no one has asked me that question before, and maybe because the dystopian view of what that could look like is too frightening. So it means fighting about issues like who gets what kind of health care. It means fighting about politics at an even more intense level and not trying to see things from another vantage point. Um, it could even mean, and we've seen just some sparks of this now, um, moving from verbal violence to physical violence and with the availability um, and the ease of access to lethal weapons. Well, I probably don't want to say anything more than that. We have a choice to create the future that we want. It's not too late. And I'm going for not utopia, uh, but improvement. Improvement is a good thing. <laughs> Hi, I'm Herring. His book is Connecting Generations, Bridging the Boomer, Gen X, and Millennial Divide. Hi, am I thank you so much for spending time with us. It was a pleasure speaking with you, and thank you for asking some very pointed questions. Thank you.